Atif, can you present your case? Yes. My patient is a 35-year-old woman who watched a lump in her left breast grow, unfortunately, over a couple of months. Subsequently, she went to see her physician who felt the lump as 5 to 6 centimeters on palpation at that time, she had no adenopathy in the left axilla. He sent her to see a surgeon who did a biopsy from the left breast mass, and it turned out to show both invasive as well as ductal carcinoma in situ. The pathology thought it's 50-50, 50% in situ, 50% invasive. The invasive component was high-grade, ER positive in 35% of the cells, PR positive in less than 1%, and the HER2 new on the invasive component by fish testing negative. At that time, the metastatic workup was negative. The patient was interested in having a breast preservation surgery, but because the tumor was very large, she elected not to go on the study. But I treated her with new adjuvant chemotherapy consisting of TEC. Taxotere, adriamycin, and cytoxan. In terms of the issue of breast conservation, how large were her breasts in relationship to this five or six centimeter tumor? It was absolutely not a practical issue unless the tumor melted away completely because she really had very small breasts. But she wanted us to try it. So what happened? We treated her with four cycles of chemotherapy. After two cycles, the mass almost decreased by 40%. But Subsequently, two more cycles, it did not really decrease. We staged her again, it was negative, then we sent her to the surgeon who confirmed that she couldn't do breast preservation surgery. The patient agreed to undergo the mastectomy, left modified radical mastectomy and axillary node dissection. And what we found, 2.7 centimeter mass, all ductal carcinoma in situ, no invasion, and 14 nodes from the left axillary covered, they were all negative for carcinoma. Just out of curiosity, then, would she be considered a PATH-CR, Matt? Yeah, I mean, I yes. think she probably would be because there's no invasive cancer. I'm interested why you only gave her four cycles of TAC, though. The reason I gave her four, it didn't decrease in size. However, actually, after the surgery, because I told her up front that she needed six, she insisted on receiving the two additional cycles of TAG. Therefore, she finished the total of six cycles. She finished in August of 06. When we started her with chemotherapy, within a month, her menstrual cycle stopped. She's obviously premenopausal, 35-year-old woman. Okay, so the question then, she's now finished her chemo. Correct. She hasn't had any menstrual periods in a couple months or... Around three months. Three months. And now the question is, what kind of endocrine therapy to consider... Ruth, can you talk about how you might think this through? My thinking on this type of patient is that even though she hasn't had any menses, that you cannot say that she's postmenopausal at this time point. So for a patient like this, I routinely treat with tamoxifen to start with. And what I typically do, she's only 35, so there is a reasonable chance she will have her periods come back. But what I usually do is, you know, I try and get them on an aromatase inhibitor after two years if I can. But you can obviously wait till five years, or even we have data suggesting that if you give five years to moxone and then leave them on nothing, even using an aromatase inhibitor later on does make some sense. I think the question is always, how do you determine if her periods don't come back, whether she has become menopausal or not? And I don't know what the right answer is, but what I typically do is do an estradiol, LH and FSH at a year after, essentially after her surgery, then at 18 months and then at two years. And if they're all consistently postmenopausal, then I may believe that she has gone into menopause. She's on the younger side, so I would be particularly cautious with this lady. 
Now, one of the issues here is she's got a cancer that's high grade, it has fairly low expression of ER and it's PR negative. And I think that, again, the data does suggest now, from the data that was presented again at the San Antonio meeting, looking at the trans-ATAC, which was the subset of the ATAC data, that there isn't this huge difference in terms of benefit for ER-positive, PR-negative cancers with anastrozole compared to tamoxifen, which we'd initially seen. And in fact, with the central analysis that they did on the smaller number of blocks in the ATAC study, it does appear that the patients with the ER-positive, PR-negative cancers and ER-positive, PR-positive cancers actually do better with an astrozole versus tamoxifen, but not by the same huge benefit that we'd originally seen on the ATAC study. So I would start this lady on tamoxifen, and then she needs to be on an aromatase inhibitor at some point. The question is when you're definitively sure she's in menopause. John, what about suppressing her ovaries and then giving her tamoxifen or just suppressing her ovaries or giving her an AI? And how would you look at her prognosis? Initially, she has locally advanced disease, but she's had this tremendous response in trying to figure this out. Well, In answer to your first question, I take a much more simple approach to this problem than Dr. O'Regan. And that's simply that I was taught never to trust an ovary. And in this woman, she's 35. She's had chemo and she's had temporary suppression of her menses. And she is premenopausal until proven otherwise. And the problem is, if you give tamoxifen, then essentially your blood tests are uninterpretable. And these women's ovaries can wake up and start producing small amounts of estradiol, which we now know probably are enough to stimulate the breast in a patient and potentially breast cancer if a person is on an aromatase inhibitor. And the problem is if you have a premenopausal woman on an AI where the ovaries have actually started to turn on, you can get cystic ovaries. Also, presumably the AI is not effective because they do have some circulating levels of estrogen. So I think the worst thing you could do is inadvertently give ineffective therapy by a switch to an aromatase inhibitor in someone who's got functioning ovaries. So if you're going to do that, because the blood work is uninterpretable, you're almost required to give an LHRH agonist. So I make my life simple in this woman. I'd tell her, in answer to your second question, that she's had a pathological complete response because Dr. Hussein's done a wonderful job of managing her that her outlook is probably much better than it would have been had we had any other pathological result, she has a pretty good chance of being cured. And I would put her on five years of tamoxifen and close my eyes and let her ovaries do what they wanted to do. Matt, do you want to add anything to that? There was some new data at San Antonio from Jack Cusack, who did a meta-analysis of ovarian suppression trials. And the overall sort of gestalt view I came away from that is that ovarian suppression does appear to be helpful. It's most helpful when you don't give chemotherapy, obviously, but there's still some suggestion of benefit. And I think that just fuels the soft trial. So if you take Dr. Mackey's point of view, he'd strongly support the soft trial where patients who show evidence of recovery of their ovary, their treatment would be randomized between his therapy, tamoxifen, versus ovarian suppression slash oophorectomy and tamoxifen versus that approach to the ovary plus aromasin. And I think that would be a reasonable thing to do for this patient. From the point of view of the blood test being uninterpretable, that's a slightly extreme view. 
I agree that the FSH and LH are completely uninterpretable on tamoxifen, but if you can get a sensitive estradiol test, note a sensitive estradiol test, not the normal one, but the one that has to be sent out to Mayo Clinic that can detect 10 picograms per mil, I think that's a reasonable way of following the patient. The final issue that I often find helpful is the BRCA1 and 2 status. In a 35-year-old, you can estimate a reasonably high chance that she's BRCA1 or 2 positive, in which case oophorectomy solves the entire problem. <laughs> and occasionally, you know, I do sit down with patients, perhaps with marginal family histories and this kind of situation, who are clearly beyond a desire to have children and do a prophylactic oophorectomy in the absence of BRCA1 or 2 status. So I've probably done more oophorectomies in the last couple of years than I have in a while. I am not so confident that just because she's had a past CR, she has excellent statistics, to be truthful. And I think if you looked at a 20-year perspective, there's still a considerable relapse risk from a tumor in this situation. So she has her ovaries taken out. What kind of hormonal therapy are you going to give her? That's easy. I just give her an aromatase inhibitor. The final little twist I would mention is don't put a patient on aromasin and expect to measure the sensitive estradiol test because they cross-react. So if you're going to put them on an AI and monitor the estradiol, which I know is some people's preference, make sure it's a non-steroidal aromatase inhibitor. Dr. Tao? As we're doing these AIs longer and longer, quality of life issues like dyspareunia is really becoming an issue. And I heard somewhere that even now Vagifem and Estring has when you do these ultra-sensitive estradiol levels, that they also have systemic effects. So we can't feel comfortable even offering our ladies that anymore. Is that a true statement? HIMAS has that data, and that data is exactly as you stated. Those are not safe agents to give. Matt, do you agree? Well, first let me state that this is a horrible problem. Some patients develop very extreme vaginal atrophy, and it's very unpleasant for them. So I've been thinking about this a little bit and discussing it with various colleagues, and I think it's an area we need to do some clinical trials. One thing I've heard of as a fairly extreme measure is vaginal testosterone as an alternative steroid to maybe stimulate hormone-sensitive epithelium. Does it work? I think we need to do a trial. I'm just throwing a few ideas out in an area where we don't ha- now, know enough Isn't testosterone converted to, to estrogen? In the well, no, because they're on the aromatase inhibitor. That's not going to happen. And the other, obviously, reasonable thing to do is to stop the aromatase inhibitor and switch them to tamoxifen in the hope that they'll get some symptom relief. And I'm assuming, you know, this is the end of all the other sort of more obvious things you've tried, vaginal lubrication and all the rest of it. I am leery about giving estrogens. I think there's even vaginally, I think the evidence is that tumors can become very sensitive to very small amounts of estrogen and we're not quite sure what we're doing here when we're giving it. But, I mean, in the odd patient, it may be a short course of estrogen to the vagina is the only option, otherwise she's coming off the drug. So I think you have to sit down with every patient and work out what to do. I'm going to divert out a little bit. This lady had a great response to chemotherapy, but there's been a lot more. She's ER positive, and there's a lot more interest now in neoadjuvant hormonal therapy. And I just wonder, Matt, if you could talk a little bit about your study in postmenopausal patients. Of course, she wouldn't be eligible of looking at neoadjuvant aromatase inhibitors. So there are essentially three studies I've been involved in, and then an additional study, the IMPACT study. Bottom line is that letrozole beat tamoxifen is neoadjuvant therapy. That was a 024 study raising this Pandora's box of who should get preoperative endocrine therapy as opposed to who should get preoperative chemotherapy. And so we designed the Z1031 study that essentially asked three questions. Does it matter which drug you give? So it's a randomization between three of them. 
can we identify the responders? So there's a fresh tissue biopsy where we're testing a whole array of possibilities as to how we might predict the patients who do so well with endocrine therapy. Clearly, endocrine therapy is all they need anyway. And that's actually made wonderful progress as E1031 is occurring about 15 patients a month now and probably close early. So if you have a patient who's postmenopausal, ER-rich, not actually this patient. This patient may have a marginal all-red score, actually. But certainly if the patient's percentage is more than 66%, she's instantly eligible. And if the patient is interested in pre-op endocrine therapy, that's a great trial for her.